Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Later in the program, Fortress co-founder and executive chairman Peter Kabasov on his plan to grow his company. But first, joining me is Justin Sherman, a Wired Magazine contributor who is a visiting fellow at the Atlantic Council Cyber Statecraft Initiative. Uh, Justin, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, a pleasure indeed. And before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And HII sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show. And Bell sponsored our coverage of the Army Aviation Association of America's annual meeting uh, down in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, Justin, as I said, welcome uh, back. Always a pleasure having you on. Your colleague at Wired uh, Magazine, Andy Greenberg, last week wrote a great piece, Russia's sandworm hackers uh, attempted a third blackout in Ukraine that was originally reported by Patrick Howell uh, O'Neill at uh, the MIT Technology uh, Review. Uh, Sandworm, of course, is sort of the code name of Unit 74455 of Russia's uh, military intelligence organization, the GRU. Um, talk to us a little bit about why uh, this uh, attack, uh, this third blackout attack on Ukraine uh, is uh, so noteworthy. As you said, it's the third attack uh, or attack attempt, at least of this kind. You had in 2015 and in 2016, uh, a Russian hacking group later determined to be Sandworm. Uh, I would recommend all of Andy Greenberg's reporting and his book on, on Sandworm for more about that. So this calls back to that. This, this uh, recent incident speaks to the fact that the GRU is still very active in Ukraine right now. Uh, in cyber. It speaks to the fact that people were uh, a little bit jumping ahead, maybe when they said things like, oh, I guess cyber isn't a big part of this conflict, or I guess, uh, you know, the Russian hackers aren't really doing much. Um, and in fact, this shows us uh, as the Ukrainian, um, you know, computer response unit put out, uh, this sandworm group got into electrical substations in Ukraine. There are varying reports about whether or not they turned off some power briefly um, before the attack was stopped. So it, it speaks to the fact that the GRU is still very active and we have to keep looking out for these kinds of incidents. Um, and uh, I want to get to the uh, how defenders are actually getting better at this game, right? I mean, because the joke was you'll find out about an intrusion eight months after it happens. So we're starting to get into the kind of real time threat detection, uh, which is, you know, obviously a lot of people have been focused on. Uh, but very quickly, like every time there is an offensive action like this, the, you know, as we saw with NotPetya in 2017, viruses can actually escape the target destination, right? And cause bigger knock on effects. Yeah, you have a risk of spillover. Uh, this appears, at least from the very minimal amount of information we have, to be a bit more targeted, right? It's looking at this particular uh, industrial system. Um, NotPetya, as you just said, is a great example of a case where uh, ransomware was used and then all of a sudden um, got loose globally and caused billions and billions of dollars in economic damage. Um, you know, there were company, you know, shipping and logistics companies who had to literally throw out tens of thousands of servers because they got completely locked up. Um, so you, you do see this. Another reason that's an important point, though, is 
that was also the GRU um, in Russia's military intelligence agency. And we have to remember that this is not a cyber specific predilection for aggressive action. The GRU in general uh, is much more aggressive, much more daring uh, than other Russian security services. You have even had cases in past years where other Russian security agencies kind of look at the GRU and go, what are you doing? Uh, because they're particularly brazen. They don't seem to care about attribution um, and things of, of that nature. So all to say, you know, we should remember that uh, historical context, as you pointed out, and two, the defenders did get involved here. They did disclose this quickly. And so that suggests perhaps some uh, promise for protecting against these kinds of incidents. And, and how are the fundamental tables sort of turning, right? I mean, it was always, um, you know, it's, it's not a question of, you know, whether you've been intruded, but how long it takes you to detect. Um, should we be buoyed uh, that nations like, you know, the, the computer emergency response team or the CERT, uh, whether from Ukraine or Slovakia or working together are able to make the, you know, is this, is this, you know, what does this tell us about our ability to deter these kinds of attacks in real time, I guess, would be my question. Uh, I think it's getting better. Um, as always, though, it's a cat and mouse game. I think, as you said, collaboration is a big piece of this. There's a lot of intelligence sharing and best practice sharing going on with Ukraine right now. Uh, even in the U.S. just today, the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative, the JCDC uh, at, at CISA, um, has announced that it's adding industrial control system operators to its advisory group. So um, those kinds of collaborations are, are really, really useful um, and important here. I also think this emphasis on real-time disclosure uh, of Russian cyber right now fits within this broader umbrella of intelligence disclosures about Russian activity generally. We've seen the US and the UK uh, and Ukraine and other countries release near real-time intelligence um, in somewhat unprecedented ways to uh, expose Russian proxy forces, to expose Russian intelligence plans. And so um, we're now seeing uh, the Ukrainian government do the same thing with Russian cyber operations. Uh, and we um, also had a disclosure where the Ukrainians put out the names of Ukrainian spies and soldiers, uh, especially those who may have been in, in uh, Bucha, in, including some uh, very detailed information. Although those are news reports that I think uh, uh, are not um, may not be fully confirmed, but uh, organizations are working on that. Um, about intelligence disclosures, I want to I want to go to the uh, topic uh, in a moment of, about of the FBI moving to um, apparently collect a lot of Russian malware, malware from systems uh, and servers worldwide. It, what, what we find is that this openness also carries a price, right? We're finding that some sources of information, technical and otherwise, are, are being shut down. Obviously, part of this is to destabilize Putin and force him to not trust the people around him. But ultimately, when you reveal intelligence, you also uh, potentially compromise your sources and, and, your, and your methods, ultimately. Um, is the risk worth the payoff, um, and especially about making the malware, right, the FBI's malware cleaning disclosure to some struck as particularly gratuitous, right? Do it, just don't 
discuss it maybe what's the puts and takes on this in in revealing this information from from your standpoint in in the long term the administration right now as i said is already uh, leaning into i mean quite considerably leaning into intelligence disclosures um you know even even on smaller operational or tactical questions of russian battalion movements or particular kinds of military equipment the pentagon has been has been having very regular press conferences and things like that so this fits within that umbrella as i said the fbi for several years has also been more of the view that naming and shaming and public disclosure uh, is important in building international consensus against uh, certain kinds of cybercrime and in deterring uh, certain kinds of cybercrime. As you said, though, there are tons of open questions about whether or not that actually is true, um, right? I mean, does saying, hey, we arrested some cyber criminal here do much, let alone saying, you know, we took some malware off some computers and, and you know, we might try and do that to you deter anything, I would say probably not, but there are many other considerations here. The, the U.S. government might want to say to Russia, we're dismantling botnets that you're trying to set up. The U.S. government, or I should say the, the administration, probably very much wants to signal to industry that the government is being proactive about Russian cyber threats right now. So there's a lot going on, but I agree we need to be thinking about the implications of disclosing this, we should be thinking about, um, you know, the implications too about how the U.S. goes after non-state hackers that target its systems, and then what sort of norm or precedent setting that permits when other states want to go after uh, non-state hackers. And and uh, because there is a question whether the FBI operated without the authorization, right? I mean, I, I can't imagine that's true because the FBI and the government has a tendency of being able to work agreements with just about everybody at the end of the day, right? Whether it's backdoors with computer makers or, or, or networks. Um, uh, ultimately, is, is, it a, is it a concern? I mean, it, it, do you think the FBI actually did negotiate these agreements or as some news reports have suggested, the FBI went ahead and did this and it should be regarded as a kind of a public international service, right? If it, if it did so without the approval or authorization of the network uh, owners uh, and operators. The disclosure said it was done with a warrant. As you said, there was some press reporting that, uh, you know, companies, not every company whose devices were targeted in this Russian botnet were informed uh there was also simultaneously reporting that some private cybersecurity firms were aware. Uh, in the Reuters report on this, um, WatchGuard, uh, for example, said that it did work with the Justice Department to disrupt the botnet and it was aware of, of the, their action. Right. So, um, you know, the FBI, you know, triple emphasize the fact that this was done through court approval, but, um, you know, I can't, no, none of us can say, right, because we can't, we can't look inside every company, but 
Um, it, it's unclear right now how many companies knew uh, and if that reporting is, is accurate that some did not. Um, let me uh, take you to the question of um, what Russia may do next, right? Uh, as you pointed out at the top of the show, right? Sandworm remains active. Uh, there are reports that we are defending uh, forward. But Vladimir Putin still has a lot of cards and a lot of cyber capability. And as you, you said, is, is tends not to be deterred by convention or even sense uh, sometimes, right? I mean, it's, it's about boldness and achieving an aim, uh, no matter how disruptive uh, it is. There are a lot of countries that would not have targeted major political parties, for, for example, for uh, penetration uh, in order to steal records. And yet the Russians do this on a worldwide basis to try to uh, tip balances of national elections. Ultimately, you know, what are, are, are we being successful in defending forward? Is it Russia's not acting? Is it a combination? What is it in, in your sense? I ask everybody who comes on the program this, because it, you know, it would seem that there would have been more actions taken, uh, more obvious actions taken. And it, it appears, you know, I mean, gas pumps are still going, food companies are still going and, you know, ra ransomware folks were targeting, you know, colonial pipeline and the like, one would have assumed we would have seen some more of those kinds of actions and we haven't. Doesn't mean we won't, but what do you sort of attribute all this to and, and what's your expectation of what's next? You just said it, just because it hasn't happened yet or it hasn't happened in the way we expected or it hasn't happened publicly uh, does not mean that in the coming weeks or months, the Russian government will not engage in more cyber activities. Um, you know, this is the same thing I think I had said a few weeks ago. This is unfortunately looking to be a continually prolonged conflict. Um, there is fog of war. There is a lot of propaganda and disinformation flowing around. We're looking at things in the public source. A lot of Russian hacks uh, and Ukrainian hacks have been happening. They just perhaps have not been in the way that certain scholars theorize they would occur. Uh, and so to some extent, this has much more to do with independent analysts recalibrating their expectations than it does what's actually happening. As you said, there's probably a confluence of factors. Um, you know, the, as the Andy and, and Patrick have been recently writing about, the GRU has been active. It, it hasn't targeted things in a widespread way. The Ukrainians are doing some good work on the defensive side and other states have been helping them. Um, but we have to remember, right, when you study cyber all day, it's so easy to pretend like it's the most important thing in the world. But, you know, as we've seen, this is a brutal war uh, that the Putin regime is waging on Ukraine and bombs and, you know, missiles and bullets are far more effective uh, from the Kremlin's perspective in, you know, attacking and destroying Ukraine and killing Ukrainians than any kind of, uh, you know, computer malware. So, um, right. Yeah. I mean, so, so all to say, I don't think, I think, you know, we should wait and see, we should keep watching and seeing uh, what happens in cyber, but um, you know, just because it hasn't been the driving force of the entire conflict doesn't mean it hasn't been happening or significant. 
uh, it, it, right? I mean, as uh, as we've heard so many times, right? As uh, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency or CISA has said, shields up is the the way to go at this at this point, uh, even if uh, we are being successful at one level or another. Uh, let me ask you one one last question, uh, Justin. And uh, German Information Security. Uh, organization and the US FCC have designated Kaspersky a national security threat. Uh, what what does that mean? I mean, the company, I think, is somewhat more popular in Europe than it is in the United States, but it's it's still uh, serving the US market, right? Talk to us a little bit about what this ultimately means, because there are people who have weaned themselves off of Kaspersky, uh, in part because of, you know, concerns about its links to the Russian state. Recent decisions by the FCC and the uh, German Information Security Org don't really do uh, much in the way of policy enforcement, right? Like the, the FCC decision does not mean that no one in the U.S. can download and install Kaspersky. Um, but they do signal, right, a, a continued assessment from these governments that Kaspersky, which is a Russian uh, and Russian-based cybersecurity company, uh, is a national security risk because the Russian government could turn to Kaspersky to spy or, or you know, uh, plan malware or what have you through the antivirus uh, applications. Uh, as you said, the market is not huge for them in the U.S. The DOD a few years ago banned the use of Kaspersky uh, on national security grounds. Um, since those the recent decisions, Kaspersky actually announced it was moving several of its servers uh, to Switzerland, um, you know, sort of as a show of, of independence and safeguard against state spying. But, you know, from a risk perspective, Kaspersky is still based in Russia. Uh, and as we well know, the, the Kremlin is very willing to use coercive force against companies that do not bend the knee. Um, and so the thought that moving servers does anything meaningful uh, to prevent, you know, the FSB from making Kaspersky put in back doors or prevent the SVR from spying through Kaspersky systems is nonsense. Um, but, it, but it speaks to these issues, right? The more Russia is isolated uh, on the global stage, the more that Western sanctions hurt the economy, the more that uh, many countries are not going to want to use Russian technology and that sort of plays into this, this growing fracturing we see of the global cyber and, and tech ecosystem. Justin, thanks very much. It was great having you on the program uh, and look forward to having you back on again uh, very soon. Thanks for having me. And joining us now is Peter Kasabov, the co-founder and executive chairman of Fortress Information Security, a cyber threat and intelligence company that started in the energy sector and has been growing in uh, growing its government and Pentagon business over the past couple of years. The company just secured a $125 million investment by Goldman Sachs that will uh, allow it to grow even more quickly. Peter, thanks very much for joining us and for sponsoring this program, and congratulations on uh, the investment tranche from Goldman. Thank you, Vago. I'm happy to be here. Uh, although you guys are a cyber threat intelligence company, you're actually a data company, right? Unlike uh, some of the firms in the business that are sort of news and information scrapers, walk us through what Fortress is and what differentiates it from its competitors. We have several 
key differentiations from uh, what what was done in uh, in in cybersecurity, especially focused on supply chain. First, we look supply chain cyber risk in a holistic way. There are a lot of companies that uh, focus just on the vendor side, like vendor hygiene. Is the vendor having all their websites secure? And is the vendor propagates, let's say malware or something like this? This is more superficial, just indicator of the vendor um, cyber health. We go beyond this. We focus actually on the critical assets and systems that eventually can bring down the mission either of the, of the fighter or the power grid down. So we look uh, everything in a holistic way. We're not so much data company, we're data analytics. We collect data ourselves, but also we ingest data from uh, different scanners and different systems and different data sources from Dun & Bradstreet and Thomson Reuters to scanners on the network that our clients have to external scanners that scan the world. We correlate this data and we identify the, the most likely attack vectors that will come from the supply chain and will compromise the mission. So we try to provide the, the lay of the land outside of the firewall and how this actually connects to the internal systems behind the firewall that actually can uh, bring down the mission or can jeopardize the mission of the, of the weapon system. Let me uh, talk to you a little bit uh, about uh, the way uh, that you plan to grow the uh, company. You, you and your partner, Alex Santos, have a reputation uh, for founding companies, uh, growing them, uh, and being able, able to sell them downstream. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the growth strategy over the next five years, right? Where, where are you going to be in the next five years, especially when it comes to the U.S. government, the Pentagon, as well as uh, international growth? This is our third venture together in the last 20 years with Alex. And uh, we have been, uh, we had the blessing and the curse to always identify new trends that eventually change how industries and businesses behave. We were in the early days of the internet when the internet was actually uh, just a website kind of uh, tool. We help companies to actually um, sell insurance online to the point the Department of Insurance had to feel comfortable that the internet is a safe place than before the financial crisis were focused on financial risk to the point that our only clients were the, the big short guys uh, because nobody believed that there was a risk in the, in the mortgage-backed securities. And, and here with Fortress for the last five years or seven years, we have been on the forefront of fighting supply chain cyber risk, something that seven years ago when we started the business, people were saying, what exactly is this? But then after Target, after SolarWind, we see definitely people actually understanding better what cybersecurity supply chain risk looks like. And uh, uh, so we, we see now finally the, 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 the behavior of, of executives, business owners and regulators to change to the point that cybersecurity uh, risk management of the supply chain becomes very important from this, this was recognized by the executive branch. There are several executive orders from the previous administration and this administration that uh, start to identify and regulate risk, not only based upon origin of the manufacturer, but also based upon the software run on the system. So we see in the next five years, actually this adoption to continue. And, and eventually we see more regulations. We see also more 
anxiety on 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 business owners uh, and operators and uh, and actually um, uh, leaders of our defense forces to to actually look at the supply chain not only as an enabler but also as a potential risk. And we see Fortress actually uh, becoming the tool and the, and the platform that allows these companies and and this defense uh, industry actually uh, and defense industry leaders to to actually manage such a risk exposure coming from the supply chain. So not only will provide them the visibility, but we also will help them to change the behavior. Of, of all the vendors and suppliers that they work with. Right now, most of the pressure um, actually comes to the buyer of the technology, like the utilities adopting uh, new technology from solar panels to nuclear and making sure this technology is protected. They invest the money, but slowly but surely they're pushing this kind of uh, pressure to the, to the vendors and demanding the vendors actually to do the due diligence and provide this data. What exactly is inside of these systems? What exactly works on the, what is on the substation? What is on the server? And how this potentially uh, needs to be patched and managed from uh, cybersecurity? We see the same thing happening in the defense industry. There is not much regulation there yet. CMMC is one of the new regulations, but we see definitely major vendors from aerospace to other defense systems to kind of putting the effort in, a, in, in adopting uh, best cybersecurity practices and eventually sharing this, their practices and their data with the buyers, the Pentagon and, and the leaders about uh, potential risks. So in the next five years, we see ourselves actually expanding from the buyers and the users of the technology to actually working with the vendors and helping them to secure their systems before they sell them to the uh, to the users of this technology. Uh, as, uh, as you noted, and uh, John Co-Francesco uh, from your team uh, and several of your team members, Andre has also uh, joined us uh, numerous times to talk about the challenges uh, of both uh, software origin and hardware origin uh, that the government is increasingly interested in, uh, you know, across the supply chain, because what we've seen is an unfortunate bundling uh, where actually a lot of very problematic software and hardware is making it even into defense systems because they're making it in further down the supply chain. And as you as you noted, Peter, right? I mean, when you go into a, an increasing Internet of Things planet, uh, each one of these is is introducing a potential vulnerability. Um, you've been in this business for uh, some time. I should point out to our audience, you were born in Sofia, uh, Bulgaria, uh, behind the Iron Curtain. And obviously, there's a lot of focus on uh, what's happening with Russia, Ukraine, and the malign influence that Moscow and Beijing are playing in the cyber uh, ecosystem. Uh, in order to better defend, you need to fully understand the threat. How is the threat landscape changing? And how do you have to tailor, your, tailor both your defenses and offenses accordingly? I, I'm pretty much a uh, um, strong believer that we need to defend ourselves because our enemies uh, are using asymmetrical warfare. They are looking at our weaknesses and instead investing in aircraft carriers, they invest in a, in a room full with hackers and they try to bring down the aircraft carrier or the, the weapon system. So the world is changing and we need to change our defenses uh, as uh, Mark Andreessen, the founder of Netscape, said uh, 15 years ago that software will eat the world. It's really happening. 
software is inside of everything from our TV sets to actually our, our phones and obviously in every weapon system. So the most important thing that we can secure is the software that enables these systems. It's not anymore good enough just to focus and make sure that the system does not come from Russia or from China. It's more important to actually understand what is the software inside of this system and how eventually uh, this software is vulnerable because even with all the good intentions of the software developer, there is a lot of uh, open source code that it's developed everywhere around the world. And uh, many times our enemies are embedding actually uh, malware and other tools inside of the software. So focus on software is critical and actually proactively identifying the vulnerabilities and patching or putting controls in place is critical. So uh, it's something that uh, we have to do every day. And uh, this is the new battlefield. Software is actually the new weapon of choice of our enemies. So what Fortress is doing is, is we're very much focused on actually identifying not only traditional supply chain cybersecurity risk, but also more or less focus on the software bill of material. Software bill of material, uh, for the people that don't know exactly what it is, is it's almost like the ingredients inside of a pharmaceutical or medication product that actually identifies what are the components and then uh, this components needs to be monitored on daily basis for known vulnerabilities and eventually being patched or be isolated from potential uh, attacks. So Fortress is one of the leading companies that actually uh, has pioneered the space of uh, identifying software bill of material and then managing the vulnerabilities coming from the software. And we believe that uh, our mission is just starting. We're working obviously with uh, all the major branches of, the, of, of our defense uh, complex from Pentagon to actually suppliers like major aerospace companies and uh, manufacturers. And uh, uh, it's, it's amazing when, uh, when uh, a user of particular weapon, uh, weapon system or system in general is asking the vendor what is inside of the software. Many times the vendor just doesn't know because they're, they're in every piece of software, there are probably 10, 20, 30, hundreds of components of uh, other software that it's embedded. So understanding the nature of the new battlefield, creating situational awareness and monitoring uh, these components for, uh, for cyber risk, it's, it's becoming the, the new responsibility of our leadership. Peter, thank you so very much uh, for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Look forward to welcoming you and other members of the, the Fortress team uh, on the program as we, uh, as we go uh, forward. And as they would say in the Navy, fair winds following seas. Thank you. It was my pleasure.